Over the last two weeks, we've been seeing in the news a lot of bombing going on in a very sensitive part of the world, right? In Israel. I was actually supposed to have our trip as a church uh, next week, right? And uh, that got canceled and uh, it was a good thing. Although it would have been exciting to write about, you know, hey, we're under the Iron Dome, isn't that great, you know? Uh, we are planning the trip for next year, so hopefully that'll happen. Uh, but when we think about that, there were a lot of people in the world praying, praying for peace, praying for these two groups to get along, to, to work it out. And we saw the, the different things, the bombings that were going on and the, and the, the missiles going over and being exploded in the air. And, and yet about 250 people lost their lives, including children, right? And the whole world is watching and the whole world is praying Lord, let there be peace here. And people are wanting to step in, politicians and world leaders, and, and wanting to work it out. The UN, come on, we need a ceasefire here. Even protests in Tel Aviv that I, I read some, some things about where they were protesting, and, and some on both sides of the aisle, Palestinians and Jews, younger people mainly, wanting peace in their day. And as we, as we think about that, We've got to ask ourselves the question, why does that matter to us? Yeah, we want peace to be in our day, in that part of the world, but why does that matter to us as believers in Jesus Christ? Well, one is we care about life, right? We don't want to see people killing each other, and that's certainly something that we should be concerned about and pray about as well. But we're told in Psalm 122.6 these words, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pay, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. If we want to do what this psalm is saying, this is a psalm of ascents. It's a psalm, it called ascents because they would, there were 15 psalms all around that, that uh, 122 up to 125 or 6. I can't remember the numbers. And, and they they're all say songs of ascent. And those 15 psalms were what the, every good Jewish person would sing as they were traveling from wherever they were to Jerusalem three times a year for all the pilgrimage feasts of Israel. And as they were traveling, they would sing these songs, and this was one of them, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, 122.6. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sakes, I will say, peace be within you. And you realize, okay, if for no other reason, God cares about the peace of Israel. He cares about the peace of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem either referring specifically to the city or referring to the nation because it's the capital. And so we see this idea that that's something that we should be concerned about simply because God is. He cares about it. But we also care about it because God gave his word to Jerusalem. And we see it in the book of Isaiah especially, but we see it all through the scripture about what God had planned and what God had promised for the Jewish people, what God had promised through Abraham, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And Jesus came through the line of Abraham and the whole world has been blessed through Jesus. 
because he died for us so that we could have eternal life, life in heaven, life with the Father, life now. And so he desires that for us. God made these promises to Israel, and if God doesn't keep these promises, then God is not a God of his word, and if God is not a God of his word, then guess what? We are in very deep trouble, because he promised us salvation, and I, I sure know that our God keeps his promises. And he has to keep his promises to Israel. So, so goes Israel, so goes Jerusalem, as goes us. So goes us. In Numbers 23, 19, we see this. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God is a God of his word. And so if God doesn't keep the promises he made to Jerusalem and to Israel, then we're in, we're in trouble. And so it's very, very important that God, what he does with Jerusalem, what he does with Israel is important to us. And so that's why when we read Isaiah, we need to understand Jerusalem is a very big part of not only God's heart, but it impacts us as well. We must not make the mistake, however, to think that we've taken over for Israel. We have not. Some have said, well, the, the Christian church now takes over for Israel. Israel was the old plan. The new plan is the church. Well, the new plan is the church through Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile. But God hasn't forgotten the promises he made to the nation and that he is going to fulfill. And we are only grafted in. Grafted in doesn't mean we took over. Grafted in means the root still the root the root is still a Jewish root the root still is Jesus the foundation is still him and so we have not taken over the promises that he made to Jerusalem are still in effect and in fact you see that in the end of times in the new testament in revelation where he talks about this Jerusalem coming down from heaven it's still a thing it's still an important thing for us as believers in Jesus Christ. Why do we pray for Jerusalem? Because our fortunes are tied, in a sense, in the future with Israel's. And you see that in Isaiah. In fact, it's interesting uh, that this, this first, uh, Isaiah 62.1 says, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. And you think, who's speaking here? I. Who is the I? If you look further in the chapter, in verse 8, it says, The Lord has sworn by his mighty hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give you grain. And so there's the I again of this chapter. I think it's the Lord. Is it Isaiah? Could it be Isaiah saying, I won't keep silent? If he is, he's speaking on behalf of the Lord. And so it's God himself saying, I will not be silent. So how long is he not going to be silent? How long is he going to speak? He says and, and gives us a time frame until. See that until in verse 1? Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch the nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. Wow. 
So until righteousness, until the righteousness of Israel is revealed and and demonstrated her salvation, and I think that may refer to a future time yet to come that we see in Romans talked about where the Jews will begin to turn and the New Testament talks about the Jews will begin to turn to Jesus, the Messiah. And the nations it says the nations, and, and Isaiah is very clear that it's not just, it, God's choosing of the Jewish people was not just for Israel's sake. It wasn't that, oh yeah, we're the chosen people, so they could brag about it. It was so that people would see what God can do for a, a nation who turns to him, so that all the nations would turn to him, that all the nations would, would want to embrace God. And so it was for his glory and that's why he says, in all the kings your glory, the nations shall see your righteousness, and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name. And the question is, is what is that new name? He doesn't tell us what the new name is exactly. He just goes on and talks about this crown and a royal diadem. But if you look into the passage, he says, you shall no longer be termed forsaken. And your land shall no longer be termed desolate. That's what we see with Israel in the Babylonian captivity. In the Babylonian captivity, they were, and, and which was yet to come, was still future when Isaiah was writing these words. He said, it's coming. And, he, and these words are being written so that you have comfort. When you're in the Babylonian captivity, you can read these words and know this is not forever. Yeah, you're forsaken now. You're uh, uh, des- dealing with desolation now. And the question that I had as I was reading that is, now is he only speaking about them coming back from Babylon? What about the other things that have happened in the last 2,000 years, especially with Israel? Where they have undergone all sorts of issues, where their land was overtaken and overrun, and then the crusaders came and, and in a sense, liberated for a couple of hundred years, and then it was overrun again, and then, uh, you know, for, for almost 2,000 years, they, they, they didn't have a, a land, that it was desolate. In fact, the, the book of Daniel talks about that, that, yeah, there's going to be a time when Messiah comes, and when Messiah comes, it's going to be cut off in Daniel chapter 9, and he says, when that occurs, The city and its sanctuary, talking about Jerusalem, will be destroyed. And the Romans did that in 70 AD. Exactly like Daniel said, after the Messiah was cut off in 33, in 70, less than 40 years later, Jerusalem destroyed again. And they've gone through the Holocaust. And I I can imagine how many people, many Jews felt forsaken during the days of the Holocaust. Forsaken by God. Some of them even became atheists because of that. Because they thought God doesn't care about us or there isn't a God and, and, he, and he's not going to keep these promises and these were just a pipe dream. They're not just a pipe dream. May 14th, 1948. Israel, the nation, risen from the dead in a sense, came back and became a nation again. Never happened before like that. Where a nation for 2,000 years is, is not non-existent and then they're back. Back as a nation, and they, and, and yet, when you and, and you begin to see, wow, look at the things that are going on, the blessing that God has given that nation, even in the midst of, of great turmoil. But prior to that, 
Here's a description that Mark Twain gave of the city of Jerusalem. I want to read it. It's from his book, The Innocents Abroad. And it describes, in a sense, this desolation that, that Daniel talks about, but he also, Mark Twain talks about in 1860, he says, the soil is rich enough, but given over wholly to weeds, a silent, mournful expanse, wherein we saw only three persons. A desolation is here that not even imagination can grace with the pomp of life and action. We never saw a human being on the whole route. We pressed on toward the goal of our crusade, renowned Jerusalem. The further we went, the hotter the sun got, and the more rocky and bare and repulsive and dreary the landscape became. There was hardly a tree or a shrub anywhere. Even the olive tree and the cactus, those fast friends of a worthless soil, had almost deserted the country. Jerusalem is mournful and dreary and lifeless. Palestine sits in sackcloth and ashes. Over it broods the spell of a curse that has withered its field and fettered its energies. Palestine is desolate and unlovely. And why should it be otherwise? Can the curse of a deity beautify a land? Palestine, or what we call the Holy Land, is no more of this workday uh, work world. It is sacred to poetry and tradition. It is a dreamland. And yet the dreamland that Mark Twain talks about that was desolate, God did beautify and he brought it back from the grave. He brought it back just as, as he has promised through the scriptures and you begin to realize, wow, there, this is not the same. This is something is happening here and this happening is supernatural. Well, he goes on and he talks about it being a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem as we talked about. Verse 4 says, you shall no longer be termed forsaken and your land no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her. And your land married. If you know the old hymn and not everybody's going to know this one, Beulah Land comes from this passage. The, the Hebrew word is Beulah. Married. The married land. Married to the Lord land is the picture. And then you see those names. My delight is in her married. Then you see at the end of the chapter in verse 12, they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. God has promises. He loves Jerusalem. He loves the people. He loves what it stands for. It goes on and says, for the Lord delights in you. And then he gives this beautiful picture of, uh, of, uh, of, of, a new, of new love, of a newly married couple that are in love with each other. He says, that's how I love you. That's how I rejoice over you. In fact, it reminds me of Zephaniah 3.17. Zephaniah 3.17, I love that one, where it talks about that, that our God is going to sing over us, that he rejoices over his people, that he sings over them. And so they did return to Israel. Or they did, I mean, God cares about Jerusalem. And so you see God's heart here his heart of compassion for the, for the nation. And so then he goes on and says in verse uh, 6, 
It says, on your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. And you're thinking, who are these watchmen that he's now talking about? And notice that he changes the pronoun here from I to they. It says, on that day and on that night, they shall never be silent. So you have, oh, wait a minute. There's a key thing here. I will not be silent. Now it's the watchmen. They will not be silent. How long are they going to be noisy in a sense? It says, you who put, on the Lord, who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him out no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise upon the earth. So there's that idea of until again. So he won't be silent until righteousness goes forth from Jerusalem. And then he says, these will not be silent. These watchmen, and you, and you see what these watchmen are. They're, they're those who put in remembrance. Those are, are put put the Lord in remembrance. They're reminding the Lord of his promises to Jerusalem in prayer because they're talking to the Lord. And so there was a, there was a website, in fact, I found of, 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 of the whole website is based on this passage, on these verses, and they said pray for Jerusalem, and they have this monthly prayer guide of praying for Jerusalem. And, and so here's this idea that God on his heart, he loves Jerusalem. It's a delight to him. He calls her married. He calls her, my delight is in you. He calls them a holy people, redeemed of the Lord, sought out. And this is where he wants the nation to go. And so this is what he asks us to pray for. I was thinking about this just kind of on a practical level. And I thought, watchmen who are never silent. That would be kind of annoying, Right? I mean, you would have these watchmen, they're all constantly saying stuff, they're constantly blowing the horn, they're constantly shouting, hey, the enemy's coming. Ezekiel 33 talks about this. He says, we need to be watchmen over the nation. We need to be watchmen spiritually. And he says, if you don't blow the trumpet, if the watchman doesn't blow the trumpet when the enemy comes, woe be to that watchman, right? And he's telling us, we, I, I want you I want you to pray. And so when I, when I read this passage, I think we need to pray. We need to pray for Jerusalem. And I don't know that about you, but that's not always right there on my prayer list. And it needs to be. Because God cares about that part of the world. God cares about those folks. And he wants them to know him. And there's going to come a time where there's going to be people that turn to him from that part of the world. And they are already. There are churches in Israel to this day that are, that are serving the Lord, Messianic Jews who, have, who, have, who not only are, are uh, in bloodline Jewish, but they are also our brothers and sisters in Christ because they've embraced Jesus. They've believed on Jesus. They've been baptized just like uh, Neely and Avery were today. People who are part of our family and he says, we need to pray until God establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise on the earth. And you say, well, it's already established. As a secular state, yes, but not as a spiritual state. Not because they, they're, they're, they've turned to Jesus. And so we need to pray that that establishment comes because that's when the nations will see the righteousness of that nation. It says, the Lord has sworn by his right hand and with his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies and foreigners shall not drink your wine. So he's saying, you're, you're, Babylon's not going to retake you again. It's not going to happen again. People are not going to overtake your land. But then he says to us in verse 10, go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up 
uh, build up a highway, cleared of stones. It's that idea that we saw in Isaiah 40 when we first started this series. We first started this series and it was uh, in, in chapter 40, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And it's that idea of preparing the way of the Lord, of making it smooth. And then he tells us, lift up a signals over the peoples. And so it's saying, you don't be silent. Lift up this banner. And what is the banner for? It's going to proclaim to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him. And so this idea of your salvation comes and the salvation and not just a message, but a person. Because your salvation comes after he says that, he says, behold, his reward is with him. He's talking about the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Your salvation comes. Is he looking at the first coming of Jesus? I think he's looking at both the first and the second. Whether he knew that or not, he's looking at the salvation that's coming because when he gets to the end of the book, when he gets to chapter 65 and 66, he talks about a new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. Isaiah knows what he's talking about and what he's telling us is our God has compassion over Jerusalem. We need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And then we need to proclaim Jesus is coming. He's coming back. He, it's not just a pipe dream. It's not something that a dreamland like, like what Mark Twain said. This is reality. And it's happening before our very eyes. It didn't happen before Mark Twain's eyes. That was 1860. It was 1948 after Mark Twain was gone. That it was no longer this dreamland, this wish, this hopeful thinking. God is at work in our world and he wants us to see it. Israel has been in the news ever since 1948. And we're watching a nation being reborn and one day we're going to watch them embrace their Savior. Amen? Amen. And so let's pray for the peace of Jerusalem and let's proclaim Christ's name. Because he is the righteousness of that nation. He is the righteousness of the world. And he loves us very deeply. The heart of God delighting in Israel and rejoicing over her is the same delight and rejoice that he has over you and me. And we should find great excitement, great encouragement, and great comfort, which is the whole focus of this, this last section of the book, this last half of the book, Comfort, Comfort My people and it's com we're comforted with the knowledge that Jesus the Savior has come. Father we come to you and we thank you so much for your incredible love and grace towards us and Father we thank you that we have Jesus our Savior and Father I pray right now for Jerusalem that you would bring peace within its walls that you would bring peace within its borders and that you would bring peace to Israel Father, we don't know how that's going to occur, and yet we read so much about it in the scriptures, so we know a lot, but there's a lot that we don't know. And so we just ask that you will do it. We ask that you will bring that peace through the Prince of Peace, 
Jesus, our Savior. Father, we pray that Israel would, all Israel would come to God, that the nation would turn to you, that its people would individually receive Jesus as their Savior. And Lord, I pray for us today. Well, I thank you so much for Avery and Neely and their testimony. Lord, I pray that, that there would be some today, even seated here, whose hearts have been pricked by you and your word, and that you would be glorified by them believing on Jesus today. Father, I pray that there would be those today that would respond to your gentle tug at their heart and they would say, I believe in Jesus. I receive Jesus now into my heart. Lord, I thank you so much for your incredible love and grace. And we thank you for your powerful delight and joy and rejoicing that you have over your people both the Jewish nation and your church thank you so much for Jesus we pray in Jesus name amen